Hello, this is Bernie Davis. Hi, Mark Davis. And welcome to our Interview Swansea and West Wales podcast. Welcome, Colin. Now, Colin has more than 25 years of security and risk-related experience. He has starred in Channel 4's SAS, Who Dares Wins, and Channel 5's Secrets of the SAS. Colin joined the Royal Scots in 1989, and after nine years, he, has pa he passed SAS selection the first time. Colin's Special Forces teams were involved in some of the most daring and high-profile SAS missions in the past two decades. Not many people have taken part in hostage nego negotiations, hostage rescue, and been a hostage themselves. Colin is one of them. Today, Colin is going to share his secrets to success. Welcome, Colin. Thanks for having me, Bernie, and thanks. And after that introduction, I'm not sure I've got much left to say, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's nice to virtually meet everybody, as is the climate at the minute, and um, certainly not my most explosive entrance. I'm used to have sailing in through windows with flashbangs and smoke grenades, and this is uh, slightly different. But um, yeah, I've been on some dangerous missions in my time, but what's my mission today? Well, to tell you a little bit about myself, some of the adventures I've been on, I've learned along the way, and things that have helped me in life and hopefully might help you. So there'll be stuff about uncertainty, change, resilience, which is a big thing at the minute, teamwork, leadership, and then the use of the debrief. And hopefully at the end, there'll be a chance to ask some questions. If anybody's uh, want to know anything, I'll be happy to, to answer anything. You might think there's some unlikely parallels here. Why, why have we got an ex-SAS guy here? He's going to tell us about his underwater knife fighting course. What's the, what's the parallels? But you'll be surprised, you know, and we all have our own aims, objectives, missions, and we've heard a few of them today. We all uh, were judged on our performance. Our reputation is key to what we do, and everybody's here because they're, they're good at the, the thing that they do, and certainly that's the same in the the SAS, you're only as good as your reputation precedes you, and so you're only as good as your last job. And certainly the SAS is exactly the same as that. We're used to working on ourselves on, on things. I've been a sniper sitting in a, you know, a derelict for two or three weeks on, on my own, or I've worked as part of a six-man team or as part of a sort of nationwide coalition. So that ability to work on your own or as part of a team's a, a big thing as well. <clears throat> you might be surprised to know that in the special air service, we're not really specialists, we're, we're generalists. And so, you know, we, we will do one job and then we'll move on and we'll learn a new skill and off we'll go. So as an example, our, our medics will uh, we'll do a six-week intensive trauma course and then we'll get sent off to an A&E hospital and we'll do a refresher every year. Whereas our Delta Force counterparts, they will be sort of doing it for two years and, and then that's it, that's their main skill. So if you lose that person from the team, you lose that skill. Whereas we'll have sort of two or three guys within that team and they'll all have different skills. So you're never sort of losing the skill when anybody drops out of that. And that's one of the, one of the main things. Failure's not an option. You won't be surprised to hear that. It's who dares wins, not uh, who fails wins. And, and we, we hardly ever fail. And there's a reason for that. And a lot of that goes into the, training, the planning, the preparation, and hopefully by the end of this, you'll, you'll have more of an understanding of what that entails. 
And that's a big part of it. And same with everything, anything that you do in communication. And communication is that golden thread that runs throughout every sort of successful individual if they're, they're running a business or their organization themselves. And listening is a big part of that. And, you know, especially in hostage negotiations, listening is a big part of being able to figure out where it is and being that secret to success. So that's, that's a big part of it. Everyone's a, a leader, or everyone certainly has to think like a leader in the SES, and certainly that's a, that's a big part of it as well. And we're not saying that everybody's a patrol commander or everybody's the CEO, but everybody has to think about what the mission is. What, what are we looking for one step up, one rung up the ladder? And if everybody's thinking like that, then hopefully if somebody drops out, we can always fill in their boots and, and take over. And that's essential for the stuff that, that we're doing. Technology is key. We've had to embrace sort of technology as well. And certainly a lot of the people I've been listening to in the intros, technology will be a big part of what you do. Certainly we're not known for being techno savvy beasts in, in, in the military, but we've had to learn, embrace and sort of overcome some of that stuff to get where we are, particularly to be able to work with stuff on our own and not rely on others. So we embrace change and change is a big part and we're sort of going through that period now where everybody's had to embrace change. So we're part of history when it comes to that sort of perspective. And I think people will be more resilient towards change once we come through this pandemic. And that's one of the things, once you encounter change, trauma, it builds your resilience and it makes you more used to embracing those elements of change further down the line. That's it. I've had a lot of different uh, experiences that cross over with, with, with a lot of you guys. So I do voice over myself. I've done some acting. We've had to embrace technology when we do our charity app that's went forward. I'm involved in health and nutrition and mindset when it comes to some of the work our charity does. So there's a lot of crossover with, with a lot of you guys and some of the stuff you do as well. Certainly as I was growing up, I think my, my childhood was a, was a big part of that resilience. And whenever people say to me, who, who am I? Whenever I ask myself that question, I think back to a day I was shut in a room. It was locked from the outside. And there was a small window in the corner. And every time I tried to go to the corner of the window and look out, a guy would come in from outside and, and he would batter me. And my, my eye, I was a mess. I had a fractured eye socket. And I was quite badly beaten. And when I tell people that, they say, well, you're, you're built for that. You know, you teach you resilience and to be able to withstand the physical stuff in the SES. But actually, the opposite is, is true. I was probably only 13, 14 years old. And this would build a sort of physical resilience for me for later on in life. So I realized that physically I could be broken down. You can bash me and I'll, you know, I'll bleed. My bones will break like anybody else. But mentally, I was the gatekeeper of my emotion. And so you couldn't make me scared or angry or sad or happy. Only I could do that. But, you know, I, I, had, I had the control over what, what happened in terms of my emotions. And that was something I always had power of, no matter how badly I was physically beaten. And that would help me and stand me in good stead for, for a lot later on when I, when I joined the, the military. There's a quote from Alder I like, and it says, your perspective on life comes from the cage you were held captive in. And I like that quote because we all have perspective. And our perspective, those glasses through which we see the world, is formed by everything around us in our immediate environment. And that may seem obvious, but as we grow up, it's our mum, dad, our family unit, brothers and sisters, we go through school. 
And then it's our work colleagues, managers, good managers, bad managers. And it's things we see on television, we read in magazines. And that's what sort of forms our beliefs, our values. Our, when we come to judge things, we, we judge it based on our experiences. And we only know by, uh, around the environment we're in. And so you take two different people in different environments and they'll have very different values, beliefs and judgment based on what's around them. And certainly for me, I, I didn't know any different as a child growing up. I, I stayed in a very small strip of houses, didn't have any friends. I didn't have anything to compare it to. So I thought my childhood was quite normal. And it was only last year that Scotland became the first and only country in the UK to ban smacking children. And it's not, the law isn't actually called the banning smacking children. It just gives children the same rights as adults when it comes to inflicting violence on them. And I'll let that just land for a second. So before that, in Scotland, children didn't have the same rights as adults, our smallest and most vulnerable members of society. You could smack a child, you can't smack an adult. And, and that's changed now. And so children just have the same rights as adults when it comes to what you can inflict violence on them. Because violence can become normalized with, with young people nowadays, whether they see it on television or video games or it happens to themselves. So, yeah, that was something that became normal for me. And I didn't realize that until later on. My mum then gave me permission. She had to write a letter at age 15 to say I could join the military. And off I went. And I never saw my parents again. And the army was my sort of family thereafter. The people left and right of me in the ranks in the army, that was my family because they cared about me. They cared about my physical and mental well-being. And that was something that was quite strange to me at the time. But I grew to embrace it and I grew to enjoy it. And it was something I thought that, you know, I wanted to be part of because nobody could do the job on, them, on their own. We had to rely on each other. We had each other's backs. And that, that forms something, that, that, that sense of team spirit. We all have a stake in it. We're all invested. We all have to put our, our effort in was, was something that I grew to enjoy. I liked my time in the army, in the Green Army, and I did sort of three tours of Ireland. Northern Ireland was a great stomping ground for the army because at the centre of the conflict was people. People were at the, the, the centre of it. And we would just be marching around the streets and, and speaking to, to people on a daily basis. And it was never about how strong the army was, your weapon systems, your tactics. It was about shaping minds and perspectives and, and changing attitudes. And that would stand us in good stead later on when we went to places like Sierra Leone, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. So that was it. And so for me, I was hiding in a bush in Northern Ireland, four o'clock in the morning uh, with a couple other guys. This was in army time. This wasn't in, you know, my spare time or anything. And these uh, two tall, dark, bearded, handsome strangers crawled in and said, right, kid, we'll, we'll take it from there. We're the SES. And I thought, wow, there's a whole nother, there's a whole nother level here. You know, it's like the, the Premier League. It's like in Scotland, we look down at, you know, the Premiership in, in England, or we look at the Welsh rugby team, you know, and we think there's a whole level there that's just, we want to, we can only aspire to, you know. And so I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to be the best version of myself and I wanted to give it a go. And I didn't want to be one of these people that 10, 20 years would be like, you know, I wish I'd give that a go because I have friends like that now that come up and say that to me. They say, I wish I'd give it a go. <laughs> I would always say, you know, whenever these things arise, whenever these things come up, challenge yourself, put you there because it's better to know the answer. It's better to know 
whether you, you can make it or not, rather than not know the answer. And sometimes that's, that's worse. But I had a great time in the Green Army. And a lot of people, particularly who come from the SES, start their story in the SES. You know, I passed the election, I became a ninja, and off I went. And they forget where they came from. They forget their DNA. They forget what made them, gave them the ability to be able to pass the election. I'll never forget my time in the Green Army because that's where I learned my trade and I had some great memories. And people are talking about their claims to fame. And I don't have many, but one of the things I managed to do was I was the Queen's Butcher for six months while I was in the Green Army. And I was based up at Balmoral. And I was just left on my own while the guys guarded the palace. And she would come in with her corgis, just shoot the breeze, you know, oh, hello, young man, how's it going? And it would just be really surreal, you know. I was only sort of 22 years old and the Queen was just coming in and out. And, you know, I would be able to dance with Lady Diana at the Gillies Ball and stuff like that. And those are memories that, you know, I, I take with me because there were special, special times in the Green Army. And sometimes, you know, especially nowadays, we have these events and things that come along and we're very quick to just capture them on a device, an iPhone, an iPad, video it, rather than just use our senses, use everything around us and, and just use that as a reminder for later. And sometimes we, we let that pass us by. So I was, I was fortunate. This was before the times of Facegram and InstaTwat. And, you know, I could, I could just use my senses and, and just uh, experience it. So I was thankful for it. But I decided to put my papers in for selection and, and see, how, see how I'd get on. Selection runs twice a year. There's a, there's a, every six months, they run selection. It runs for six months. And there's about 200 people that attend. And it's supposed to be the best of, of the army. And selection, being in British Special Forces is quite special because we're made up from the entire, you know, there's very few Special Forces that recruit from the RAF, the Army, the Navy, the Territorials, and from last year, women. And we want that. We want that because we want as many different people, as inclusive as possible within our patrols as we can because we realize that gives us greater strength we don't want six paratroopers, all with the same skills, the same experience. We want six very different people, engineers, females, linguists, demolitions experts. And we want that as part of our team because it gives us more spectrum. It gives us more that we can do. So we embrace that. So I went in day one, there was 200 people, people far stronger, bigger, faster than me, higher in rank. And one of the first things I did was I said, I'm not going to measure myself against anybody else. Because I think when you do that, sometimes there's, there's a risk that you'll fall short. And so one of the first things I did was I said, I'm not going to measure myself against anybody. I'm just going to do the best I can do. And that's the measure. And that's always the measure. That's the measure for everything you do in life. You do the best you can. And you're your own template. So as long as you do your best, you're the measure for everything you do in life. So that's one of the first things I did. And that would stand me in good stead. Another thing I did was I said, I'm just going to take it one day at a time and set goals. And so my goal there was always just to go one day at a time, get to tomorrow, because that's one day further than I thought I'd make it. Because a lot of these guys had experience of selection. It might have been their second time. They might have been paras or marines that had a good knowledge of what selection about. For me, it was the first time I went to the jungle. It was the first time I parachuted out a plane. It was the first time that I used these weapon systems. But all I did was I make myself valuable. I learned these new skills. I had other things to offer. And I knew that even if I failed, I was just going to go back with all these new skill sets. So I really enjoyed selection. A lot of people just worry about how hard it was physically. But for any of these daunting physical challenges, it was far more important to be mentally resilient than physically robust. 
Everybody there was fit. There was 200 guys there that were all fit, but the mental resilience, that was a big part of it. And sometimes they would put tests and blockers in there just to catch you on the mental resilience side. They would set tasks that they knew you couldn't pass just to see who would try, just to see who would keep going. And that was a big part of selection. So I always tell people, you're, you're, you're the measure. Set one day at a time, set many goals, even if they're marginal gains, keep going and you'll get where you need to be. Anyway, six months later, I, I never felt I was at the front. I never felt I was at the back. I just felt like I was somewhere in the middle. And it just so happened that the start of selection, there was about 200, there was 196 on my selection. And at the end, six months later, there was 12. And I, was, I still felt like I was somewhere in the middle. But I'd passed selection and it was very unceremonial. They just threw a, a belt and berry at me and said, right, report to D Squadron. And right away, I became the lowest common denominator and off I was at the bottom of the rung again. But I, I was sort of thrown into a baptism of fire. I was only in the job three months and I was only 23 years old. And I was sent away on a forward air controllers course, which is great. They give you a chance of flying a jet and blowing up targets and stuff. It's fantastic fun. And they gave me this pager, shows how long ago it was. And they said, Colin, if the pager goes off four nines, that's a counter-terrorist incident and you need to respond to it. And I said, okay, no problem. And they sent me away on this course and I'm up in the jet and the pager went off and I was like, uh, you, you're gonna have to take it down. So they take the jet down and I phone up exchange and I'm like, Hi, Exchange, it's Colin, the, the new guy. And um, my pagers just went off, four nines, and they said, yeah, it's a, it's a hijacked jet, and it's coming into Stansted, and you're the closest one there. So get there and hold the fort. I was like, what? They were like, get there and hold the fort. I was like, hold the fort? I'm like 23, I've been here three months. I'm going to hold the fort? All right, so I get all my Darth Vader kit, all my black kit, my sniper rifle and everything. I chuck it in the Range Rover, and I hightail into Stansted. And as I come flying in in the Range Rover, I can see the chief superintendent. He's there looking behind me sort of thing. And he says, uh, where's, where's the rest of them? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm the advance party. The rest of the guys are, are just coming. They'll be about 40 minutes. And the deepest voice I could muster for a 23-year-old, he says, okay, get in the main hangar and give the guys a brief in 10 minutes. I was like, yeah, we'll do. And I was thinking... Give the guys a brief in 10 minutes? I'm like 23, I've been here three months, so what am I gonna brief them on? So I get into this hangar and there's like 200 people there, Cobra, intelligence services, firearms, press, they're all there, 200 of them, all looking at me apprehensively, much as you're all looking at me now. And I thought, right, okay, there's only two ways this can go down. I can either go out to the stage and go, look guys, I don't know if you know, but I'm only 23, I've only been here three months, so if, if you guys point me in the way of the coffee machine and you guys deal with it, I thought, that's not gonna fly. I'm gonna have to let them know the SAS are here and we've got this. So the first thing I did was I put my black kit on because I put my black kit on, I put my boots on, I've got my little hand cannon strapped to my side and I just feel about an inch and a half taller and I come out into this stage, 200 of them, and I say, right, ladies, gents, let's confirm the make and model of this jet as it comes in. Let's direct it over the pan, directly over the tunnel so we can get underneath it. Let's disable the steering so they can't go anywhere. Let's drain all the engine oil and fluid out of there. Let's get eyes and ears onto the plane and confirm exactly how many terrorists, how many hostages, what their arms and demands are. Let's keep the press at bay. You'll know your jobs. Go, go, go. And everyone went flying out different corners of the hangar. And I was like, Whew. I was like, Guys, when are you coming? And they said, we'll be there in half an hour. 
And I went out to the back of the plane just praying for half an hour nothing happened. I'd have to single-handedly storm the plane and probably mess it all up. But luckily, this was, wasn't quite short. This was actually the longest UK counter-terror siege in history. It lasted over four days. And we, 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 we did everything. We got, we got the exact same model aircraft in the hangar behind us. And we assaulted it over and over and over for days. Tried everything. Our motto is, who dares wins? But not a lot of people know that we fail all the time. All the time. But we fail in training. We fail, we learn from it, we go again. We fail, marginal gains, we go again. We, we learn something, we do it until we perfect it, and we just keep repeating until it becomes muscle memory. So we tried everything, landing helis on the wings, blowing the doors off, using gas, running along the roof. We tried everything until at the end of it, there was only ever two ways we were going to assault the aircraft. The IA and the DA. Now, the DA is a deliberate action. That's what we're going to do at a ground time of our choosing to give us the best chance of success. But we also have to have an IA, an immediate action. So what happens if they start killing hostages right now? What's the plan then? And sometimes I think individuals, organizations, corporate sales teams, they'll have a DA, they'll have a plan or a plan A and a plan B. They'll very rarely have an IA, an immediate action. What happens if your time, manpower, resources, budget gets cut in half now? What's the plan then? And sometimes people wait until that happens and then go to the drawing board. And this recent period is a good example of that. People will put in place planning and some people will be able to deal with this whole pandemic better than others because of plans and measures they've put in place. Thinking long term, we might have to work with this. This might be here for a year, two years, forever. How do we work with it? How do we succeed? Because we can't just say, well, we'll abstain. We've got to have a plan and it's got to be able to work in all scenarios. So that was one of my, my very first missions. Went on for four days and four nights. And people like to tell, you know, the bombs and bullets stories and stuff. And I quite like telling the funny stories because it's funny times that gets us through these grim times that we're, we're in. And for us, they were trying to think about how to get eyes and ears onto the plane to figure out what was going on. So they said, Colin, we've got this phone and we'll give you this phone and you put it on the plane so we can speak to them. And when they lift the handset to the phone, it's going to operate a camera and we'll see everything on the plane. I thought, great, James Bond stuff. So they gave me this phone, right? And it was like something from the First World War. It was like this size with about a kilometer of cable. So I walk out to the plane and I chap on the door and the door opens and I put this phone up and they shut the door and it cuts the cable. And I'm like, that's, that's not gonna fly. So I speak to them and they're like, right, right, okay, okay. What, they've asked for food. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna put pizzas on the plane. And in those pizzas, those little mini trays, the little table things that stop the pizzas collapsing, those will be listening devices and we'll hear everything on the plane. I was like, okay, fair enough. Domino's jacket on, pizzas, and I go back out to the plane again, I chap on, I put the pizzas up, the door shuts, I think, fine. I get about four steps and the plane door opens, all these pizzas come flying out all over the tarmac. Ham and pineapple, they're not gonna eat that and they're certainly not gonna eat ham, it's just a disaster. So I say, look, that's not gonna fly. So they're like, well, okay, okay. Every couple of hours, we'll dial into the cockpit and we'll speak to the captain and he'll let us know if there's any injuries, who the terrorists are. 
any demands, and that will be your intelligence. And that lasted as long as the end of the first night. And the captain was the only guy to try and escape, and he jumped out the cockpit and broke his leg. So that was it. We had no intelligence. Four days, four nights into it, they're not releasing anybody. And Jim, who's one of the snipers on the back of the plane, he comes on the radio, and he says, that's a body on the tarmac. Now, for us, one body, one person killed, we're storming the plane. That was, that was the rule. So we get in our Range Rovers and we hightail it towards the hijack jet. 400 yards, 300 yards, 200 yards. Now I can see people's faces through the windows in the plane. We're 100 yards from the plane now and Jim comes back on the radio and he says, and that's the body stood up. And we're like, well, it's not a body then, is it? And we're right on the plane. So I don't know whether they looked out the window and thought, I uh, saw this for a game of soldiers, but they put the ladders down and they just released all the hostages. So we managed to rescue all the hostages safely and capture all the hostage takers and everybody was safe. So that was my first experience of a mission when it was all sorts going on. And really a lot of that was about train hard, fight easy. We could easily have just said, you know what, we'll do it the way we did it 20 years ago because that worked, but we can't. We, we can never do that. We can never say it's just the way we've always done it. And sometimes I meet individuals and organizations and that can be their attitude. Well, it worked last year, it should work again. And I always think we can never be able to do that. We can never just say it worked last time. We've got to constantly look at everything with a fresh set of eyes, a blank sheet of paper and go at it again because that's really important for us. And that's how we've survived the test of time. We always have a debrief. At the end of everything, whether it goes well or whether it goes badly, we debrief. We bring everybody together and we say what worked well and what didn't. And that's important. And you've got to make time for it. And whether you do things well or not, is, it doesn't matter. But you want to do more of the things you do well and less of the things you do badly. And the most important part of the debrief is action in it. Because you can have all the debriefs in the world. If you don't action them thereafter, nothing will come of it. So we always make time for the debrief and we always make sure people are accountable and action. We always action it. Not long after that, we were in the jungle and we were practicing for a type of hostage rescue anyway when Sierra Leone kicked off. And for people that remember around about 2000, the West Side Boys, who sound more like a boy band than any serious guerrilla outfit, they'd taken over Sierra Leone and they'd taken 12 British soldiers hostage. And we were tasked with coming in and rescuing them. So there started a period of hostage negotiation, back and forward, trying to get as many people released as we could, relying on emotions, communications, eye-to-eye -eye contact, body language, just trying to create rapport with them, even as you would as a hostage, to try and find common themes, to try and mitigate that risk. One less person each time from there was one less person that we'd have to go in and save. So at the end of it, after a few days, we managed to get seven of them released. So they were holding five of them and it looked like they were gonna go through and execute them. They also had a number of civilian hostages, female hostages and Sierra Leone army hostages. So, and again, people like to put these stories together, but there started this period of planning for it. And people like to tell, you know, the brave stories and I stormed the machine gun nest and I took two in the chest. I quite like telling the funny stories. And actually from that, I got shrapnel in my leg. And before, when we were all flying, I was flying down through Birmingham airport. And as I went through the metal detector, I went beep, 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 beep. And I was like, oh, sorry, it's, um, it's uh, shrapnel. And the guy said, yeah, just take your change out your pocket and put it in the tray. 
I said, no, it's, it's shrapnel. He went, yeah, like twos and ones. I was like, no, like grenades and RPGs. He was like, oh, okay, on you go. But anyway, I digress. But everybody was talking about the best way to go and rescue these hostages. So we had these three officers, you know, minds like planets, you know, millions of pounds of training, being to Sandhurst, more degrees than a thermometer, probably played every weekend in their tweed jackets. And they're talking about the best way to go in and rescue these hostages in a little micro model. So Urquhart Farquharson says to Blithers Smythe, well, Blithers, what I would have is a, is a parachute team go into the jungle canopy and in one straight line sweep through and rescue all the hostages. Blithers says, well, Urquhart, I, I take your point. But what I would have is a dive team covertly infiltrate by boat and in pairs, building to building until they rescue all the hostages safely. And at that point, Mad Tony walked past. Every organization should have a Mad Tony. Mad Tony was about six foot seven version of like Ross Kemp and he had this rubber chicken would bounce around in his weapon and he bundles past these buffoons and he says, no, you should do, get some helicopters, fly over the top, slide down ropes, grab a hostage, kill anyone else and fly off. And he just walked away. And these three officers, you know, millions of pounds of training were like, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll do that. And ever since, it's been known as Operation Certain Death. Nobody wants to volunteer for Operation Certain Death. I was volunteered. I was volunteered as one of the recce team that was going to go in and find this camp and take out the sentries before the main assault comes in. And for anybody that's been in the jungle, it's a real debilitating environment. It breaks down your body. So we were in there sort of five, six days, wading through the swamps, body was broken down. I lost seven toenails. Four of them have never come back. I know I'm sweeping all the ladies off their feet right now. <laughs> Eventually, we find the camp. We recce around it. We, we find out where the sentries are. And, and, and then as the main assault comes in, we take out the sentries and guard the area where the main hostages were. And they tried to re-attack it. So they kept coming in to try and get the hostages and we would fight them off. And, and our instructions there were just to fight until we had no ammunition, engage in hand-to-hand, -hand, and then, you know, delay them as much as we could until the main assault came in, because there was only four of us. And so the main assault comes in, we managed to rescue all the hostages safely, uh, probably killed 40 to 50 of the enemy, and we managed to capture the main ringleader alive, Brigadier Fodi Kali. And so he was held accountable. We, unfortunately, we lost one guy during the assault, Brad Tinian was shot and killed. And of course, everybody was just in a, in a bad way because we'd lost one of our guys. We go back to the ship afterwards and Director Special Forces stands up and he says, look, I know you all feel bad. You've lost one of your guys, Brad, but listen, we were prepared to lose up to 12 of you to rescue the five guys. And there'll be people out there, particularly you guys that are better at maths than me, but I was thinking 12 for five. How does that work? But that was the nature of the game. And it was with great risk comes great reward. And it wasn't about numerically how many people we lost. It was about the message it sent. And sure enough, within two or three months, Sierra Leone was safe. And the West Side boys had disbanded for the loss of 40 to 50 of them and one of our guys, which was a relatively low price to pay when you look at conflicts like Iraq and Afghanistan. So that was Operation Certain Death or Operation Barris as it became known in the book and the, the history channel, the documentaries that were made on it. And for me, you know, I, I always think there's this thing about, you know, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And, and so we built a, a, an exact replica of the camp exactly to scale, 400 meters by 500 meters. 
and we built all the buildings where they were. We put the hostages where they were, the heavy machine guns, the sentries, the snipers, and we assaulted it over and over and over until four o'clock in the morning in pitch black when the guys come sliding down the ropes. They knew every square inch of that camp better than the people that lived in it. And we've always had to do that. We've always had to adapt to the environment, whether it's the desert, the jungle, the Arctic. We've had to become better in the environment than the people we're up against. And certainly as corporates, as organizations, you have to do that as well. You have to become better in your field than the people you're up against. So whether that's having a better product, better sales, better customer service, better look, um, whatever it is you have, it's got to be better than the person next to you. Otherwise, you're always playing second place. So we've always had to do that. But that was Operation Certain Death. Not long after that, I found myself in Iraq. And I was uh, driving a local taxi around the streets of Basra and a dish dash, fake tan, fake hair dye, a little MP5K, which is like a little Uzi strapped to my leg. I wasn't having a midlife crisis or epiphany or anything. This was uh, Operation Haythor, and it was to look after MI6 out in Basra, the southern city in Iraq. And when I got out there, the nature of the game changed uh, right away. And sometimes life's like that, just throw you right in at the deep end, sink or swim. And you've got to deal with it, and you become stronger as you come through it. So I took over from six guys and I only had three guys. And one of the guys didn't have a driving license. And this was a driving job, really. It was navigating around the city, breaking down terrorist cells, doing counter surveillance for MI6. It was also deemed too dangerous for MI6 to go outside. The, the, the threat levels were too high. And none of them had done the course that allowed them to carry a gun. And all my ideas about James Bond went right out the window. I thought, right, okay, this is, this is up to us now. So we were running agents on our own, driving around, doing the spots, commentary, breaking down cells, and gathering intelligence. But it was a great job, but there was lots of little things that were going wrong. And if I can give anybody any advice, take care of the little things. Marginal gains are important because all those little things can add up to a big thing. And so for us, our cars would break down because the engines weren't great. We didn't have a quick reaction force coming to get us because nobody would know about it. We only had three guys later on, four. The radios didn't work outside the, the city centre. So we had lots of little things that needed taking care of, and they weren't. And in this day in question, I was tasked with dropping off two MI6 guys down at the, the Kuwaiti border. So we did the rehearsals, went, went fine. And then on the day in question, dropped off the agents, and then myself and one other drove back in towards Badra. And that's when our car broke down. So we tried to fix it, bump it, raise people on the radio. We got nothing. So I did what any rational human being would do, and I hijacked a taxi. So the taxi comes along, I've got my M4, and I try and bribe him, and I show him my money, and even he wouldn't take Scottish sterling. And I was like, it's sterling, you can trade that at any bank. Anyway, he wasn't interested. So I gave him some US dollars, he's a bit more forthcoming, and I throw him in the back seat, and then off we go in the badge run. And I thought, that's it, use my initiative. Hijacked a taxi, home for tea and medals. They'll talk about me for years to come. And it didn't work out that way. As we came into the outer checkpoint, coming into Basra, we just got front and tail. And they tried to get us out of the car. So they started firing shots. And there's only two of us. And the guy next to me, Lee, straight off selection, smallest guy in the regiment, he looks at me with eyes like flies. And he's like, Colin, this isn't good, is it? And I remember that guy, that guy that was young, fresh in the door, thrown in the deep end. That was me in Stansted a couple of years before. So I said, you know what? I said, Lee, 
Where are the SES? Look at the firepower we've got in the back seat. How many times have we had to debus out a car, pin the enemy with fire, and then E and E all the way up until the, the, the river? I said, the river's a straight line at Red 19, and from there you know where the palace is. And he looked at me and he said, All right, okay. And he believed me. And inside I was thinking, we're doomed. But I couldn't tell him that. If we had any chance of getting out of that, we, we, we had to believe, we had to have faith. So we put down some rounds, one of their rounds hit the top of the car, we come out, we clip a couple of them, and we hide around the engine block of the car. And the car becomes a magnet for fire. And I'm thinking, right, okay, we're not gonna make it to the river, one of us is gonna get clipped. So now I'm on plan C. So now I'm thinking, okay, now we're gonna delay them here. Delay tactics, because I'm on a main arterial highway and a US or UK call sign will come by at any time. So we're trying to bunker down, I'm trying to delay them, I'm trying to show them our kit, I'm giving them a pigeon Arabic, oh, Jundi Britanni, shui shui. They're not interested. They drag us into this little sort of outbuilding next to the checkpoint and try and strip us. So they're trying to get our kit off us, our weapons and stuff. And every time they try and grab something, I put up a bit of a fight until they fire a shot or they butt stroke us and then I just give them it. Until eventually I'm stripped, naked, blindfolded and handcuffed in the corner of the room. And I can hear the same is going on with Lee next door. So I'm shouting out to him because I'm always conscious. I'm the commander and, and he's under me and I'm trying to keep him reassured. We're at the checkpoint. They're going to come past. Just stay calm. They're, we'll get rescued. But meanwhile, they're, they're, they're beating us up a, a little bit. They're, they've got the guns to the back of our heads. They start fighting between themselves. And then eventually this guy comes in and he, he must have been in charge. He was the fattest with the biggest moustache. And he says, we're the chief of police and it's mistaken identity. We thought you were Egyptian terrorists. Must have been the nose or something. I said, no, we're not Egyptian terrorists. We're, we're, we're Brits and we're, we're at the palace. We're here to help you guys. He said, okay, okay. We're going to take you in the back of the cars and take you back to the palace. So they don't fully clothe us. They don't give us our kit back. They throw us in the back of these SUVs. They've got about six of them. And now there's a big crowd forming. And we fly back to the, the, the palace. But before we get to the palace, instead of turning right, we go left into the police station. And take us in the police station, they take us upstairs in a big courtyard. And they've got video cameras set up, tables with all our kit, and they've got some knives and orange boiler suits. And I was thinking, this isn't ideal. I, I don't suit orange. So I tried to tell them they're not interested. They don't like my British sense of humor. So they give me a clip and they drag me downstairs. And downstairs in the courtyard, there's all these armored vehicles and stuff. And in the middle of them, there's a white four-door saloon, just a white car with the doors open, engine running. And they try and get me in it. And as I look inside, I see the driver's got a balaclava on. And the guy in the passenger seat, he's got an AK-47 across his lap, and he's got a balaclava on. And there's one guy in the back seat, he's got a shortened version of the AK-47. He's holding a pistol, and he's got a balaclava on. And even I was thinking, this isn't ideal. How do you drive with a balaclava on? So they don't like that. They're trying to get me in there and I decide, right, now's the time I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight now. I'm not getting in that car. So I start dishing out headbutts and Chinese burns in all directions and they can't get me in the car. And as luck would have it, that's what saved me because there was a, an airplane up around 20,000 feet and it was doing a video serial of something. And it noticed this big commotion going on in, in the police station. So he just videoed it for a minute or two and then fed that back to command. And they put two and two together and realized it was us, myself and my colleague. At the time, they decided not to come in and get us. They said, it's too dangerous, just leave them. And luckily for us, special forces countermined them and said, no, if we can't rescue them, what message does that send our guys when we're going in to rescue others? 
so they put a tank in through the wall. Uh, all I heard was, a, a, never been so pleased to hear a, an English army officer's accent in my life, shouted out to him, um, and they managed to get us back to the palace. And the next day I was, I was moved up to, to Baghdad on a different task. That, that kind of summed up for me. I, I came out of the military not long afterwards, and uh, it, I'd never planned to come out of the military, but I'd, I'd made a difficult decision after that. And I was always worried about uncertainty and going into a, a different environment. I'd been in the army for a long time, 17 years, and the, the latter half of that with special forces. I was worried about the civilian world, but one of the things that was great about it is the adaptability. We're, we're all more adaptable than we ever think. We, we can embrace change. We don't like change as human beings, but we, we can embrace it. And we're all far more adaptable than we think. And since I've left, I've been involved in all sorts, whether it's TV, writing books, public speaking, um, management consultancy, surveillance training, voiceover work. And I guess some of those on their own can be quite daunting. And, and I remember earlier getting mentioned that fear of public speaking. That's a big one for people. And for these things, it's all about experience. Once you do something once, yeah, it's scary. But the more you do something, the less scary it becomes. And you sort of protect yourself. And for anybody that's been through sort of trauma within their, themselves or their family, once you've experienced it, you almost have this sort of force field, a shield against it. You have these onion layers that protect yourself against it later on. And certainly I'll, I always get nervous of, of public speaking, but I've become better at managing it. I've become better at thinking about the things that may go wrong and concentrate on the positive things. And rehearsals and planning and training and all the good stuff that I got with the, the military, that's helped me in, in a lot of ways. And a lot of people said to me, you know, are you never scared? I've been scared lots of times, scared out my wits. And in many ways, that's how I measure bravery. It's not about how fearless you are because we don't want fearless people in the SES. It's about how scared you are, but how willing you are to go forward rather than backwards. And in many ways, that's how, that's how uh, I consider bravery. And that goes with everything. That goes with public speaking, the first time you jump out an airplane or the first time you do anything. And so that was it. I've been fortunate since I came out, I've been able to get involved in all those different things. And I've also been able to become ambassador of a number of charities, one of which I have, Who Dares to Cares. And I think for anybody that they've come through and have an understanding of things, you have a responsibility to give back. And I always say there's nobody gives more in society than our veterans. So I do a lot with the, with the charity and, uh, and, uh, and I do a lot with uh, that sense with all other different charities. So it was a pleasure to serve. It was a pleasure to serve then. And it was a, a pleasure to serve you today. I'll hand back over to, to Bernie and I'm happy to take any questions. Fantastic. Oh, guys, come on. Amazing. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, goodness. You know, so I, there's so many um, key things that you said, but for me, what stood out, stood out was mental resilience over physical robustness. You know, it's, uh, that's a recurring theme during the pandemic, uh, you know, Colin. It is about the mind, how important it is to take care of this mind of ours because that's what does everything. That's what made you make that decision. Fight. I am not going in there and I'm going down. But at, at, at that moment of courage, when your mental resilience took over your, <laughs> your diminished physical robustness with all of the people that were around there, but you weren't going down, that was it. So that's just incredible. Guys, 
I know you have so many questions, and Mark wants to yeah, start yeah. off first. Well, yeah. A lot of the questions I had, Colin, you 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 went through through you know through the talk and everything, but you know, one thing you mentioned early on was that when you joined the SAS and that you never saw your parents again. Is that literally that, or is it you know it's just a figure of speech? Because you you had me worried then for a minute. I thought, wow. <laughs> No, I if I think had circumstances gone the way they would have, I, I wouldn't have saw my parents again. So I've never saw my parents apart from once since I joined the army at 15. And um, sadly, the, the only reason I went to chat my mother's door again was because my brother was having severe difficulties. Um, and my mother was one of the few people that could help. And one of the things I've learned through the veterans type stuff is sometimes you're the last person that, that can help, even if you want to. So my brother would never let me help him because I was the big brother that was away in the SES and I would be the last person he would let in. But I knew my mother could help and it took a lot for me, probably after about 15 years of not seeing my mum, to track her down and chap her door. And unfortunately, um, she, she wasn't interested, a lot of deniability, and, and sadly my brother committed suicide. But it, that was the only time I, I spoke to my parents from 15 years old from, from joining the military. Wow. And the other thing then uh, I wanted to ask you, which is a little bit probably different to what lots of other people are going to ask you, I'm sure. But how do you sort of deal with like the sort of your family aspect of it? You know, the sort of secrecy, the security, you know, the contact, because when you're away, you know, there's no sort of contact, I assume, you know, nobody knows where you are at any one time, you know, and you're, uh, uh, you know, I assume you have a family and everything. And when you're in those sort of things, how do you sort of deal with that? And I, well, so much, it's not so much for you, I suppose, because you're concentrating on what you've got to do, but the family at home, you know, they must be like sort of in pieces at times thinking, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. And I, I think, I think there's there's evidence out there that a lot of married families and units within the within the military suffer. You know, there's a lot of divorces and breakups and, and broken homes. And I think because it's very it puts a massive strain on it. And um, it, because you're away and and you want to be part. You know, a relationship's all about that social interaction. And it's okay if you're managing to send letters, you're on the phone, you, you have video like we have, but quite often the places we were going, that would be it for six months. So, you know, I'm, I'm divorced myself. And um, I think even, even though I had a sort of negative experience myself as a child, it reinforced all the things that I knew were positive. So I've used all that stuff and I've, I've decided that these are the things I missed as a child. So there are things that I think are important for me as a, as a father for my children. So you just try and make yourself a role model for your children and things that are important and things that aren't. And so that, that, that's been important. But yeah, there's the, it's really difficult in the military to keep that relationship going. And you see that now with COVID where people are forced into the house together where they're used to being <laughs> apart. And it has, it has its own challenges as well. Very true. And then the other thing, like just a general thing, and then I'll pass it over to everybody else. But all the things that you, you mentioned as you talk through, I'm, I'm sort of like comparing it to like business. And I'm thinking, well, everything you talk about there with in terms of sort of relationships, team building, even sort of being individual, 
you know, having your own sort of mentality and strength to move forward, being the best you you can be. All of those things are all the things we say in business. Yeah. You know, and it's it's just so amazing how similar yeah. all that all the values are, tra are transformed across. And it's surprising that I know back I mean back a few years ago there was a thing sometimes when people came out of the army to try and come back into society, people were almost afraid of taking them on in jobs and careers and stuff because of their military background, thinking, can I handle them? Are they able to work in a business community? But when you say all the things you've just said, they're an easy fit. You know, it's, just, it's, so, it's, it's so good. Yeah, and that's why sometimes I start off the talk about unlikely parallels because whatever line of business you're in, some, some of the basics are always going to be the same and it's always those common themes that run throughout every successful organisation or individual. And, and indeed, mental resilience is a top part of that, you know. And if you're an elite sports person, athlete, sports team, at the end of the day, everybody has the physical attributes, the tactical, you know, when it comes to you know, two sets all and Andy Murray's serving for the, the match or it's penalty kicks and England are going to try and, you know, it's the mental side. And that's, that, that's the only thing that separates them. It's nothing to do with ability. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Brilliant. But, well, we're opening up now. To, I mean, there's loads of people, I think. I know. I think well. Suzanne Smart, you, you, you took the first... Um, the, 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 you put thank, your thank request. Thank you, Colin. Yeah, thank you, Colin. It was an amazing story, especially the transparency there about um, the beginning of your life. Absolutely amazing. Thank you. Um, my question is, so I work with people who um, have lived in a very fearful state, sometimes for years, and you know, I've got one client, 40 odd years, um, and um, it's getting them out of that mindset of fear. And the thing with them is the triggers um so something will spark them off a smell or a sound and it takes them straight back to that awful situation so my question to you is do you have those triggers and if you do how do you deal with them yeah it's a very good question and um there's a direct link there between veterans with ptsd and obviously mm -hmm. the, the the people that you come across that have their own trauma through various incidents and triggers have the same effect because they, they trigger a way to tell your brain what's happening and then your, your brain shuts down your body because it tries to protect you because it recognizes these things. And so on one side, I think there's an element of sort of retraining the, the brain and you'll know more about this than me in terms of that cognitive side of telling your brain that this doesn't mean this, it means this. And it's far more complex than that. And I had to go through a little bit of that myself. Another bit that's a bit more practical, but certainly less, uh, less easy to put into practice because emotions are powerful. But at the start, I talked about the, your emotions and how nobody else can control your emotions. And that's easier said than done. But if you think about it, people can do whatever they like, but I don't have the ability to make you scared now. I don't have the ability to make you laugh now. I can try, I can try and influence it, but you're always the one with the key. You're always the one that decides whether you're going to be scared, happy, afraid, whatever it is. And so knowing that, just, have the, just having the knowledge of that is a useful little tool as part of your toolkit to help you through it. But certainly it's really complex, really challenging. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for a question, Suzanne. Uh, Peter, you, you're you in the queue. Yeah. 
Yeah, on me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, it's Pedder. <laughs> um, yeah, very interesting, Colin. Thank you very much for that. I'm just interested about the sort of um, anonymity side of it, because I, I guess I've heard stories about how you have to keep everything so secret. Um, you know, did people in other sort of parts of the army know that you were, you know, in the SAS and did the family know? And, and what did you tell people that you'd meet out socially when you came home? Just interested in, 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 in that side of it, really. Yeah, I think there's a sort of myth that there's this sort of double life almost, that once you go away in the SES, nobody knows. But actually, the practicalities of that are really difficult. So most people, 99.9% .9 of people that are in special forces, everybody from their parent unit will know because they've went away on selection, they haven't come back. Everybody, close family will know, out with the family is whether you choose to tell them. But generally your wife, kids, brother, sister, that, that sort of uh, family unit would, would know. Friends, that depends. And for most of, the, most of the military veterans, and this is one of the problems a lot of them face, is their circle of friends are all military anyway. So they would have a, a good understanding of what unit you're from. And there's, very, there's some veterans and some guys that have served that have friends out with the military but it's, it's not massively common. And the more time somebody spends in the military, the tighter the, 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 the circle of friends that are in the military are. And so it's very rare that you'll have people that are close to you that don't know what you do. That was certainly the case for me and most of the people that I know. There may be the, the odd exception, but if somebody tells you that nobody's allowed to know and they're in the STS, they're generally either a Walter Mitty or they're trying to pull someone on Tinder or something. <laughs> Brilliant, thanks. Uh, fabulous. Right, okay, um, Mark, uh, okay. Birch. Hi, Colin. <laughs> um, who inspired you to do what you do and do what, do what you did? Oh, man, the questions are good, eh? I just prefer when they see how many people have you killed. It's a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good question. I... So I, I think my grandfather was probably one of my few and only role models to, to that degree because for me, my, my granddad stood for everything that I used to measure a man, like, you know, integrity, family values, um, doing things the hard, you know, doing things even if they're hard when, the, you know, the, the other way would be a lot easier. And so he, he set loads of examples for me where I was just, you know, it's things that you think 99% of people wouldn't do that. That was the hard way of doing that. But he knew it was the right way. And sometimes, you know, the, the right way can be the hard way. And quite often these days we choose the easy way because, you know, it's, we want to get from A to B quicker or we can, we don't want to deal with all the other stuff. But if we do it, you know, the hard way, it saves the, the, the long-term damage. And, and, and also, you know, it's, it's easy for yourself to reconcile with. And certainly for me, I've faced decisions in, in my life that, you know, I've always, I've, always been, I've always been scared, but I've always considered the consequences. And I think sometimes when you consider the consequences, it helps you make a more informed decision. So there's plenty of times I've been scared and the bullets have been winging by and I've thought, I'd much rather go this way, but what are the consequences of that? And then I'm quite quickly reconciled with that and I'll go in this way because I think, well, there's the consequences and I'd much rather go flying in that way regardless of the outcome. So 
I think sometimes when we consider the consequences, it makes our decision making easier. But my granddad set a great template for that. Fantastic. Brilliant. Uh, well, we're going to have Mike Armstrong. Hi, Colin. How's it going? You okay? Good to see you again, mate. Yeah, I asked you a question about your uh, airplane raid last time, but um, now I'm, I do a, a podcast myself and I'm into sort of the media and, and again into all of that. How did you break it into TV? You know, what, what was that story like? And also, um, have you actually thought about doing a podcast? Because you're very funny, so I think it'd be a good one. <laughs> so, yeah, two parts there. So the first, the first one on the TV, not a lot of people know, but I actually made my TV debut back in the early 90s and um, the, there may not be a lot of people old enough, but there used to be a, a series called Soldier Soldier that was on. Yeah, yeah. And I was across in Cyprus with the, with the army at the time and they needed extras. They needed people that actually knew how to fire all the weapons. So I was like, meter, meter. And so I got picked. And, and so one of the early series of Soldier Soldier, I actually got a speaking line and I got paid for it. I got something like 200 quid for it, which at that yeah. age back in then was like a fortune you know, and I was like a rock star, you know, so um, no, it was brilliant. But that, that was my first experience. But more recently, I got asked to do a series. I think the first TV stuff was the SES Who Dares Wins, the Channel 4 show. And it got pitched to me that they didn't have SES guys. They needed me on it. The rest of the guys were all SBS. And a lot of people probably won't know the difference. But they were going to call it SES Who Dares Wins. So they needed an SES guy on it. And they said, it'll be up to you. You, you just go with it. And I, I went along the show. I really enjoyed the first series, but there was a lot of typical Channel 4 politics, which I didn't agree with. Um, and so it's like anything, you make a difficult decision when you stick to your integrity. But, I, I, you know, I had to sort of, um, I had to leave Channel, Channel 4, but um, done lots of stuff since on ITV and Channel 5 and Secrets of the SES and Netflix documentaries and stuff. So, yeah, I've, been, I've, I've enjoyed it and I enjoy TV, but it's a, it's a fickle industry. Um, in terms of podcasts, I've never been one for um, creating my own podcast, um, but I'm, I'm happy to, to go on podcasts. Uh, I, I see that they're, they're a massively growing um, part of media now. And um, they, they, there's so many people, especially in this environment that we're in, that, that, that sort of podcasts and stuff is a sort of, you know, daily, if not weekly um, part of their, their lives and you can learn a lot from podcasts and you know I listen to people I mean I, when I was on the speaking circuit last year you know I'd go up behind or in front of people and it was interesting listening to them talk and that's what sharpens you you're always trying to improve and I'm the same with my with my speaking as well I'm always trying to improve so you see other speakers you see other techniques and you see what works and certainly humor is a big part of that Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Fantastic. Right, uh, uh, Gwen, oh, my dear, I think Gwen, you wanted to ask a question? I did, yes. Um, thank you so much, Colin. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, hi. Um, thank you so much. It's very inspirational. And uh, so many of the things that you've been saying, I'm thinking, yeah, actually, those are the things I do. Um, I think the most, the, uh, the most important thing that you said was mentally I was a gatekeeper gatekeeper of my emotions because I think that this is the thing we do forget that we cannot allow other people's definition of us affect us so um, that links into really 
another thing that I've been thinking about, the, the heightened levels of adrenaline, you know, like top-level athletes, because a lot of top-level athletes, when they leave the game, they have a great deal of difficulty um, coming down from all that excitement because they have a pattern of um, their adrenaline is constantly being pumped through their system. How do you cope with uh, um, a reality which may not have that level of adrenaline, that excitement on a daily basis? How have you coped with all of that? Yeah, I think I think it's it's individual um, driven. So there'll be a lot of people. I have a lot of friends that came out of the SES and they still do skydiving, high speed motorcycles, uh, uh, extreme climbing, extreme sports, stuff like that. I've never, um, I've never really had that, and I've realised that with that sort of when you when you when you have that passion for for adrenaline and for pushing your limits and stuff. There's an element of risk that comes with that. And um, throughout my time, whether it was on operations or exercises, I've seen the cost of that risk. So I've almost went the other way. I've become really risk averse. And not just with me, with my children. And you think I would be like, come on, let's go skydiving and run up this mountain. But I've become the opposite. I've become like a nervous wreck. So if they climb the stairs and there's not like a rail at the side, I'll, I'll have like my yellow bib on and hard hat and I'll like jump in at the side. I've become like, ridiculous so yeah I've, I, I guess I see sometimes how fragile life is and I've become a sort of um, gatekeeper of that in, in terms of become quite risk averse so no adrenaline for, for, for me is sort of rush hour traffic or um, you know make, making sure that the kids don't eat too many skittles that's about as uh, high risk as it comes for me these days. Thanks. Fabulous thank you so much and we have time for one last question and that's Amy. Amy, would you um, please ask your question? Hi, yes. Yeah. So I'm, um, I love sci-fi and everything. So I was really interested in those gadgets that you were talking about. So I'd like to know what would be the coolest gadget that you've used or you have seen? Oh, wow. Oh, this is a toughie. The coolest gadget. Right. I'm not sure I'm going to give you the right answer. I'm just going to give you the one that I can think of in 10 seconds. But when we got sent out to um, Iraq, they had a piece of equipment and it could discover um, scopes. And it was like an anti-sniper device. So if I was looking at a block of flats, I had something that could scan the windows, see if there was a scope and let me know. And it also had the ability, it could sort of fire a, a sort of laser through and destroy the scope so the sniper couldn't work. And I always thought that was ingenious, that little, uh, that little piece of kit. We have loads of other ones and we have loads of sort of sneaky beaky stuff, whether it's tracking devices or things that can interrogate IP addresses while you're on the run, while you're chasing somebody. But yeah, there's loads of gadgets. And I think the most practical one is probably lock picking. That's probably the only one I've had to use with any just sort of practical use since I've left. So you get your sort of little toolkits and you can break, break into locks. That's probably the only one I've used since. Do you still have it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can show you. I can show you. Thank you. Oh, you, you're going to bring it? Wow. Here's my little box of tricks. So this is it. It's just a little uh, miniature one like this. Oh, wow. And then you open it up and it's got all my little toys inside. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm. <laughs> you would have failed to get into a lock then. <laughs> 
No, um, no, hardly ever. Although nowadays things are a lot more sophisticated, but now it's become electronic. So there's device sort of fob defeating devices. So somebody can stand next to your car for sort of 10, 10 seconds and they'll be able to break your, um, break your lock. But well, I don't well, want to put fear of God in anybody, but... Um, yes, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, th I, think, I think this is probably the best time. We've gone over time. I know there are others who had questions, but we really, uh, you know, it's fantastic, guys. We're gone past one o'clock. We don't normally do that. No. But thank you so much, Colin, for um, coming. Thank you for sharing everything that you have. Thank you for being so generous with your time. It's fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. And, you know, for my part, you know, there are some of the things that, like I said about the mental res resilience. But um, what another thing, marginal gains, yes, and immediate action plans, guys. So let's look at that, guys. Look at the marginal gains, how we're going to go step by step, but then we need some immediate action plans. All right, so thank you so much. This episode was brought to you by Intrabiz Swansea and West Wales. Further episodes are available on our website, which is www.intrabizwestwales.co.uk. Thank you for listening.